you may have heard of the fastest man on the planet. His name is Usain Bolt. And he is the fastest man over 100 meters in the history of the planet Earth. Between 2008 and 2009, the Jamaican icon broke the men's 100-meter world record three times with his final time of 9.58 seconds standing unbeaten to this day. So the fastest Olympic sprinter in the London Games, Usain Bolt, he averaged more than 23 miles per hour in 100 meters for a 9.63 second for his time. I bring him up because we want to think about sprinters. As we're starting our new theme, which is pressing on toward the goal of Christ, we find out that the word pressing is an athletic term that actually leans more towards a sprinter than long distance. Now we know in Hebrews 12, 1, that's long distance where it tells us, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But the idea of pressing on is the idea of motivating and moving forward towards the prize, and the prize is Christ. Now, I just want to just share a little bit about this theme that we have this year. Last year, our theme was uh, preserving the unity of the Spirit, and so there was unity. Well, one might imagine, okay, well, now since we're all united and unified, now what? Do we just stand around, shake each other's hands? Well, yes, and encourage and pray. But, but where are we going to go now? Where do we want to go? Well, if you go to the book of Philippians, Paul, who said that he had not attained perfection, but he continues to press on toward the goal. And that's what we want to do this year. That's our theme. And it's not just a theme where, well, let's just keep pressing on. When we go into Philippians chapter 3, and we begin to look at the aspects of what he means by pressing on, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm excited about these things. Well, before I move on any further, I do want to take a moment to at least read for you um, Philippians chapter 3, and I want to read verses 10 through 14. Now, the verses that were read this morning, those are the verses that I'm going to preach on. But these, this is the context behind our theme. Paul then goes on to say in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I, and here's the first usage of it, I press on, I bend forward. Like when a runner comes to the finish line at the very end, they press forward at the very end. I press on 
so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Lord, would you help us to understand its context, its observations, especially its interpretation, Lord, and then most especially its application, not just for these series of sermons, but for the entire year, yea, for our entire lives. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ by justification through faith. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the Holy Spirit in uh, a, a new nature to be able to live these things, yea, even what is called the power of the resurrection. Father, would you help us then to press on in this goal, which is none other than Christ-likeness. May we be like Christ. May we live like Christ. May we press on towards this goal this year, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, even though we're not teaching the book of Philippians, I thought it was necessary to just look at a little bit of a background. And I'm going to try to go through this uh, you know, rather quickly because I have way too much material for one sermon here this morning. But we'll do our best. I mean, we have all year, right? I mean, it's a new year. All right. So first of all, when you're thinking of the book of Philippians, let's get the big picture first, the context. And we'll just narrow it down to chapter 3 and the theme. All right. So first of all, one would ask, well, why did Paul write in the first place? What were the occasions for him to write. Well, the number one occasion would be his imprisonment. Philippians is one of the prison epistles. And of course, he begins it from the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. He lets them know numerous times in this epistle that he is in prison, not because he's depressed and dejected, but in order to encourage him. And you see through this epistle that he's always encouraging them. And he says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, me being in prison, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. That's what Paul was concerned about, the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Those prisoners, or or those, those Praetorian Guard, were chained to Paul, and he had a captive audience. They were not allowed to harm him or kill him, and so he was able to share the gospel with each one of them, so that the whole Praetorian Guard was saying, I'm not going to watch him. You watch him. I'll pay you to watch him for me. But seriously, 
This is his encouragement, even though the imprisonment, there's the gospel and other things. But he also is going to write, like in most New Testament epistles, he's going to write about false teachers. This always comes up in all of his letters, most of his letters, and in most of the epistles. There's something about false teaching. And Paul is going to talk about the false teachers and warn them about them, namely the false circumcision, namely Judaizers. Even though this is a very positive book and and one of his most joyous, there is one part of a little bit of disharmony with Euodia and Syntyche. He says, I urge them to live in harmony. So that was one of the other problems that needed to be addressed along with Ministry details, I want to come to you, I'm sending Timothy to you, and all of those details. This is why he wrote. But in between these purposes, there is some great and deep teaching. Even though he is in prison, it very well could be said that the key verse of Philippians is verse 4 of chapter 4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why would that be a theme? Well, because the word rejoice and joy, from which is a derivative of the Greek root, is mentioned 16 times in this epistle, either having joy or telling them to rejoice or that he rejoices. Now, when you come to chapter 1, what's he rejoicing in? Now, there are other things, and there are other parts of the theme, and we could go there. But I see the number one title for chapter 1 is Rejoice in Christ, Our Life. None other than Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And by the way, I think this idea for me to live in Christ is connected to our theme, I press on toward the goal of Christ, to live Christ. Chapter 2 is rejoice in Christ our mind, or one could even say your attitude. Philippians 2.5 says, have this mind or attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're emulating Christ in our mind and in our attitude. We come to chapter 3, which is the chapter we're going to settle in eventually. And it's the title I gave it is Rejoice in Christ, Our Goal. What's our goal in all of this? Well, chapter 3, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then chapter 4 of Philippians would be rejoice in Christ our strength. That we have his strength to do all of these things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Tell you what, just going through these um, gives gives the uh, desire to teach the book of Philippians. I don't know whether we will uh, right after Ephesians or not. We're still praying about that. All right, well, let's just zoom in for a moment on chapter 3. So turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in here for a little bit. 
This is still summary, though. As we're looking at this chapter, I'm making the proposition that when it says pressing on for the goal, what goal are we really talking about? In a nutshell, I'm going to say Christ-likeness, and I'll explain that through the text. It would be present sanctification. We're pressing on in our present sanctification until the future sanctification, until we're in heaven. Or we are pressing on right now in Christ-likeness, to be more like him, to have a closer walk with him, to know him intimately until we get to heaven and we are perfected and have the prize of being Christ-like. In verses 1 through 3, that's when he begins to talk about the false teachers. And this is important because this is how this chapter starts and how he ends up in verse 14. We'll see that in just a moment. Verses 4 through 9, the verses that I'm going to preach on this morning, talk about no confidence in the flesh. Here were these Judaizers, these false teachers. They were bringing in their false teaching that you can have salvation through circumcision and other works. Paul says, if anyone could have more confidence in the flesh than me, I'd like to meet them. I could have more confidence in the flesh than anyone. And he gives us credentials and we're going to go through them. All to say this, that before we can press on toward Christ, we have to know Christ. That's the prerequisite. We have to be believers. And so it's so important. You know, Paul was so taken up with the gospel. I'm in prison, but the gospel's going on. Here, in essence, he's giving the gospel. It's not by works. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the first thing we're going to discuss today. But then comes the pressing on toward the goal. And so we look at this verse, and it is a little hard to dissect Uh, You try to look at the context before and after, and it's a little hard to dissect. But when it says, I press on toward the goal, this is what one writes. Paul uses the analogy of a runner to describe the Christian spiritual growth. The believer has not reached his goal of Christ-likeness. But like the runner in a race, he must continue to pursue it. That this is the goal for every believer is also clear from other scripture. In verse 10, he's going to say several phrases. One, he's going to say that I may know him. And so we're to move on and press on, but I first want to know him intimately. First of all, it would mean salvation, but then it would mean I want to grow in Christ. It's all about Christ. It's not just a religion that's void of Christ, or I receive Christ as my Savior, but that's the end of our relationship. I want to know him in a deeper relationship. So I'm I'm looking forward to going through that. Then the power of the resurrection in verse 10. I think that's resurrection power for us to live. The fellowship of Christ's sufferings, that we love Christ so much that we're willing to go through the sufferings for Christ and the death, the die to self. And then in verse 12, look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He writes, not that I have already obtained it. Obtained what? Well, he's got to be talking about sanctification. He's not obtained perfection yet. He's not obtained Christ-likeness yet. 
It's just not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Thinking of the road of Damascus at that point. One writes, the race towards Christ-likeness begins with a sense of honesty and dissatisfaction. I need to press on. I need to forget what lies behind. I need to press on and go and grow, go further. The Greek word was used of a sprinter and refers to aggressive, energetic action. Paul pursued sanctification with all his might, straining every spiritual muscle to win the prize. Verse 13, forgetting what is behind, reaching forward like the sprinter to what is ahead. And then, somewhat in a summary, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is Christ-likeness here and now, but it also is perfection of Christ-likeness in heaven. One writes, Christ-likeness here and now. Christ-likeness also in heaven. This is the time when God calls each believer up to heaven and into his presence. It will be the moment of receiving the prize, which has been an unattainable goal in earthly life, but one in which we are pressing forward towards. So that is the context of our theme. And then finally, in chapter 3, he's going to conclude basically in verses 17 through 21 with, now that you know this, put this into practice and walk after Christ, your manner of walk. Well, that's the brief summary of what the goal is about of our theme this year. Again, as we're united, now what do we do? Now this is where we go. This is our target. The target is Christ. But I want to revisit, I want to revisit verses four through nine, because this is how he has gotten to pressing on. Again, he is dealing with those false circumcision Judaizers who believed that you can be saved by works and he is so emphatically against it. Now, what do we mean by saved by works? Well, people thinking that they could do something that God will say, hey, that's good. That's good enough to come into heaven. And that is wrong. That is not biblical at all. There's a couple of I'd like to suggest Some call it the work of philanthropy. Someone says, I'm going to give money. I'm going to contribute. I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to see uh, that I meet someone's needs. I'm going to make charitable gifts. And I really can't imagine that on that final day that the Almighty would damn me to hell. Look at all the money that I've given. Money doesn't get you there. The work of service. Someone says, well, I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to pitch in. I'm going to give my time. Now, let me just give a caveat here. And that is, I'm not saying that as a believer who's already come to Christ by faith alone and Christ alone, that you shouldn't pursue these things. 
especially the work of service and ministry. We're told in Scripture to do that. But this is a person who thinks, whether it's in a church or even outside a church, many unbelievers are secretly hoping that if they do good things to people, that will be enough to get them into heaven. Here it says, the work of service is I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to pitch in. I'm going to use my skill and expertise. I'm going to get my hands dirty for Jesus or for whatever deity I think is in charge. I'm going to work to do good and to serve, shoveling my neighbor's walk or going and giving to the food pantry. And on the judgment day, I can't imagine God would watch a video of my life, of me serving on Thanksgiving Day with the homeless and then send me to hell. There is the work of ritual, confession, confirmation, communion, baptism, prayers, beads, candles, church attendance, pointing a map toward a city and bowing down five times a day in the direction of that city is not going to get us right with God. Doing all of these other rituals are not going to take away our sin and make us righteous before God. Someone writes, I've been to funerals and so have you where the clergyman has stood up and said, we know that the dearly departed is going to one day be in the presence of God because they were baptized. Then there's the work of comparison. All right, I'm not the best guy in the world, but I can point you to a million people who are far worse than me. If we're looking at a bell curve, I'm on the plus side. By comparison, I'm in. Then there's the work of comprehension. The whole thing is a riddle, and I'm going to figure it out, and when I figure it out, I'm going to be in God's good graces. If I learn enough about the Almighty, then I will be accepted. I understand and can articulate the salient points of the gospel. Therefore, I'm a recipient of salvation. It is very interesting that in, in the debates that they've had between Christians and atheists, I have found that atheists many times can articulate the gospel accurately. They just believe it's foolish. They don't believe it. Sometimes I've listened to Christians articulate salvation, and it's not so good. How about the work of decision? A decision. If you walk an aisle, if you sign a card, if you depend upon your own actions that that thing saves you rather than Christ, then you're misguided. The work of restitution. You know, I have done a lot of bad things in my life, so I need to go back and take care of it. I had a man tell me once that he went several years without tithing, and now he is paying God back. Well, that kind of thing. And, and God sees this, and he will forgive me. How about the work of affliction? This looks like beating yourself up or penance. If I give myself hell here and now, then God won't give me hell later. Martin Luther, in an attempt to be saved, used to beat himself with a whip, literally. He used to flog himself until he realized that the just shall live by faith. The work of meditation. 
well, I can just go on a retreat and be quiet and be still before God. He connects with me when I clear my mind. When I'm poised and quiet, God comes and meets with me where I am. We're like this, me and the big guy. I'm okay. Number 10, the work of balances. The the one that everyone knows of. The, The one that comes to man because of his natural inclination, which is not biblical. It is wrong. And because of his pride. I have done bad things, but I also have done good things that should be approved of by God. I believe that my good things will outweigh my bad things. But what we find out, especially from the Apostle Paul, before he goes into pressing on in the Christian life, he talks about how to get there, prerequisite for pressing on. So let's turn in our Bibles once again to Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1, and we want to try to go to verse 9 this morning. So this is going to be a commentary, but but what is called a a sprinting commentary here. We're going to go through these verses, but uh, in order to cover the majority of them, uh, we have to just kind of go through them quickly. We come to verse 1, Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brethren, look at what he says. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul, you're in prison. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. I love these. First of all, again, the Greek word kairo, um, it means spiritual joy. It's used nine times in the Greek. And then the word joy is the Greek word kara, and that is a derivative of kairo. And so when he uses these in the book of Philippians, it's some 16 times. There's also another Greek word that He uses as well with this. So it is about rejoicing, regardless of your circumstances. Rejoice because you're pursuing Christ in your life, in your mind, as your goal, and in your strength. Rejoice. It can't get any better than that unless we go to heaven. Now, I love what he says to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Peter says the same thing about repetition. And you know, when you're teaching or preaching, um, repeating God's truth over and over is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It should never be, oh, not that again. Oh, here we go again. It should never be that. We should delight in hearing these truths about that the Bible is inspired and it's God's infallible, inerrant word. I love that. I love everybody who says that. I love every time that comes out of somebody's mouth, I want to say, yeah, hallelujah, because that's the battle we're in. Or salvation, when someone says, no, it's not by works, it's not by baptism, it's not by giving, it's by placing your faith in the work of Christ on the cross and that alone. And the moment that that is done, your sins are forgiven, all of them, past, present, future, and you have eternal life. So it is not laborious to repeat these things. Paul says so, Peter says so. Therefore, it's biblical. So we, we find ourselves teaching and repeating truths from God's word. 
Well, now we come to verses 2 and 3, where he's going to talk about the criticism of the Judaizers. So it's Paul's cheer, or joy, but cheer begins with C. Paul's cheer in the Lord, Paul's criticism of Judaizers, Paul's credentials in the flesh that he gave up, and Paul's confidence in Christ, going to verse 9. Well, verse 2 then, he begins to talk about these false teachers. And I think this is what starts it all. This He's going to talk about them, and then he's going to say, look, if anybody could have confidence in, my fle- in their flesh, which is what these false teachers are doing, it ought to be me. But I gave them all up. I counted them loss for the sake of gaining Christ and his salvation. And then he goes on to say, but having had salvation and knowing Christ and the power of the resurrection, I haven't yet attained perfection, but I press on. So that's the thinking and the chain of thought that goes on. But notice where he says here in verse 2 and then also in verse 3. He says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. He calls them dogs because at that time they were, there were many stray dogs in the area and they were a nuisance and uh, they were the lowest of low, would eat out of garbage cans, eat out of the gutter. No one wanted them around. And this is what Paul calls them. These are the lowest of the lowest. Why? Because they preach a gospel that is not the gospel and it's leading people to hell. These are the lowest of the low. That's why he calls them evil workers. They're doing the work of evil. If you think about all the things that people could do, the bad things a person could do, one of the worst is to spread a false gospel, giving a false assurance to multitudes of this is what it means to be saved, and you're okay now because you were circumcised, because you're following the law. Yes, you believed on Christ, but you also had to do these other things with that you, in, your, in your works. And this is what is the situation with these Judaizers. He calls them false circumcision because that's what it's about. And, and even though it's more than just circumcision, they have to submit themselves to the law. This is the biggie. Try to get somebody to say, hey, you can, you can become part of our group, our organization, but you have to be circumcised. That's, that's the stump to get over. That's the, the speed bump. Well, in spite of the counsel by the apostles in Acts 15 in regard to not putting these things on the Gentiles because it's faith alone, they disregarded all of that and they demanded that they had to, their, their converts had to be circumcised, had to submit to the law, and particularly Gentiles. It's, it's particularly Gentiles. And there, another reason why this circumcision is so false and so bad is because it opposes the only other alternative, which is the right alternative, and that is justification by faith. False circumcision cannot save Justification by faith is the only thing that saves. 
It says here, verse 3, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Believers are part of the true circumcision. Well, what does that mean? Well, the true circumcision refers to the circumcision, the divine circumcision of the heart. The moment that we trust Christ as Savior and are forgiven, have eternal life, have the Holy Spirit, have the new nature, there is a spiritual circumcision putting away the old nature, and now we must live and and pursue the new nature. By the way, Paul even talks about that in Colossians 2. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So it's a spiritual circumcision. And it was always to have that, that intent. And the, the point is, true believers do not put confidence in the flesh. True believers do not say, well, I... I'm going to work a little bit, and I'm going to believe. True believers realize that if you sin one sin, you are under the guilt of the law, the whole law. You are under the wrath of God because you have offended his holiness. Something must be done for you because you cannot do anything for yourself in regard to salvation. And then Paul begins this really to bring about his credentials, his credentials in the flesh before he was a believer. And here's his point, verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Now, even that sounds a little prideful, but after we go over his credentials, he's exactly right. There was no one who pursued this idea of confidence in the flesh, obeying God's law, working your way to heaven than Paul. And most Jews of his time thought the same thing. And he's going to go through uh, these various things. Now, the first part refers to his, his heritage, that which his parents did for him or that which he cannot help of being born a Jew um, and these things, born in the tri- uh, under the tribe of Benjamin. But the next one, the next verse we'll talk about, not Paul's heritage, but Paul's zeal. He not only had the right pedigree, but he had the right pursuit, or at least he thought. Well, let's pick it up then in verse 5. I'll read it and then we'll go through it. Verse 5 says, and he's giving his prior confidence in the flesh. The things that if these people want to talk about the flesh and works and what gets you to heaven, let me show you what my past life was. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee. Well, let's pick it up with circumcision. So, Paul began right. Or actually, Paul's parents began right. They were devout Jews, and they made sure that their son Saul, before he became Paul, 
began his life in the fulfillment of the law. The law says that a male child is to be circumcised on the eighth day. This is really what is the idea of the sign of the covenant. A Jew is born into the covenant by the fact that he's a Jew. But there's a sign of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant is circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17, and I will have you turn here, verses 11 and 12. Let's just take a look at this real quick. Because it's the big deal with the the false circumcision. It's the big deal with the Judaizers. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 11 and 12, says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. And so it had to be a universal thing among them. Now, what do you do when the gospel comes out? And here's these Jews. Some of them may have come to Christ. Some of them may have come to Christ and they say, well, what do we do about the Gentiles? Well, they should certainly be circumcised first. And then they've got to live according to the law. Well, the truth of the matter, those things are not the things that save. Now, certainly there's the moral intent of the law, thou shalt not kill. We would certainly do that as believers. But in Acts chapter 15, it was determined that they're not going to put those things on a person in order to be saved because that's not biblical. It was by faith. In Christ alone. So Paul said, hey, look, I began well and I finished well. I began, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Next it says, of the nation of Israel. So what what is so important about this, that he's a Jew? Well, there's a lot that's important about this. But one of the things is, is those Judaizers were basically keying in on Gentiles, right? Because... Jews had been circumcised. So this whole idea of circumcision was for Gentiles. And the message really became, the main message of this was you have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. You have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul said, I'm not a Gentile. I'm not a Gentile dog, as they were called in those days. I am a Jew. I am of that nationality. And not only that, but not only am I God, one of God's chosen people, but the blessings that come from being a Jew are the inheritance of the Jews. Now, I'm not talking about salvation, but in Romans chapter 9, he said, he talks about the Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service, the promise whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh. So he, he was brought into all of these national blessings because he, he's a Jew. So some of these Judaizers were, were not all Jews. Some of them were Gentile converts, and they went and preached the same thing. And then he says, from the tribe of Benjamin, 
So if there was ever a, a tribe that you could kind of have a little pride in, it would be the tribe of Benjamin. We know that Benjamin was Rachel's youngest son, the one she gave birth to in her passing, the most beloved son. And her other son, of course, was Joseph. So it would have been highly, Benjamin was highly regarded. And, you know, he was the one, if you thought, if you thought they were treating Joseph special, not, not his brothers, but if you thought he was being treated well, jo, if Joseph was being treated well, well, Benjamin was even more so. We also find out that Israel's first king was a Benjamite. It was Saul. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. So it has that pedigree. And then finally, we find out that after David and Solomon's kingdom was split, it was the, only the tribe of Benjamin that united with Judah that continued to follow the Davidic dynasty. So Benjamin in, in history of First and Second Kings is a major, major tribe that has remained loyal. Well, he says then, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, what would he possibly mean there? Well, one could look at perhaps traditions. One could look at customs. One could look at even the learning of Hebrew, maybe even the Hebrew language. Uh, He was a Hebrew. He was not a Hellenized Jew. Now, he knew Greek, but he was not a Hellenized Jew. He knew Greek some of the Greek philosophy, but he was not what was known as a compromising Hellenized Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He also studied under Gamaliel, and he was the respected rabbi of the time who was the grandson of the great Jewish teacher, Hillel the Elder. And so he, you know, now we're getting into his education now that he's old enough to have education and he's learning Hebrew, he's learning under Gamaliel, one of the most famous and respected rabbis. This, this is making him a Hebrew of Hebrew and not a Hellenized Jew. And then he says, I'm a Pharisee. As to the law, a Pharisee. Well, what do you think about the law? What's the doctrine of Pharisees in regard to the law? Well, it's... it's It's much orthodox than that of the Sadducees. Well, the word Pharisee perhaps comes from Pershon, and it means to be separate. And so they were biblical separatists that tried to remain true to God's word and God's traditions, although they did believe in the traditions. And, of course, Paul is a reflection of what they believed and the zeal and the doing things by works in order to be saved. But the Pharisees were at odds with the Sadducees and their doctrines because the Sadducees did not accept the Old Testament, all of it, as authoritative. Just the first five books, the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in the resurrection, and they didn't believe in the afterlife. Wow, imagine that, going to your your pastor, and he says, well, I don't believe in the afterlife. Well, the Pharisees believed in these things. And And you remember, Paul used this to his advantage in one In one court case, when he brought up the resurrection and there were Pharisees and Sadducees there and and a uh, brouhaha came about. 
the, the, uh, the dugouts were empty. Even those pitchers in the pitching cage came out to fight here with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, again, he is, he is giving his credentials. And so far, from a human point of view, is blameless. And he's going to even say that. But now he's going to talk about his zeal. So it wasn't just outward. It, it, it's inward. And, you know, that does make a, distic, a distinguished, uh, distinguishing uh, uh, quality. Um, it's not just someone who just knows things. It's someone who knows things, believes things, and does things. That's, that's the real point. As believers, we aren't just to know the Bible. We're to know the Bible, know Christ, have an intimate relationship with him, and pursue the goal. We're, this is what we're to do. Well, in verse 6, it says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. The definition of zeal is transliterated from the Greek word zealos, which you get the word zealot from or zealous. It means someone with ardent and intense enthusiasm and an action and taking actions for a cause. Now someone brought up that if you're thinking about the zeal of Pharisees, it would be a love-hate relationship. They would love God and the things of God. They would hate whatever or whoever offends God. Now in, in a sense uh, there's the idea we're supposed to hate evil and we're supposed to hate the things that God hates, sin and those that those that would do things to offend God and his holiness. So, so you can understand that. But Paul obviously thought Christianity offended God, which leads him to his next phrase, a persecutor of the church, which could be the understatement, the greatest understatement in the Bible. First of all, we see Paul's zeal was excessive, and it was misguided, especially when it came to Christ and Christianity and Christians. He thought he was doing God's will by going after them. Now, in, in one of the thoughts that came out this week was someone said, well, he couldn't have been Gamaliel's student then because Gamaliel was a peace-loving teacher and preached love. And if you remember, Gamaliel was the one when, when they were talking about uh, Christ and the movement of Christianity, he said, well, you know, if, if this is of God, there's going to be nothing we can do to stop it. You remember that? Well, someone said, well, then he couldn't be, Paul couldn't be a student of him, reasonable, peace-loving, and someone writes to answer that, well, the doctrines of any teacher, however moderate he himself may be, are liable to be carried to extremes by an overzealous pupil. And that is exactly right. And I've heard professors say that about some of the horrible stories of students that they've had. And they go out and do things that are unbiblical. They teach things that are unbiblical. And then they say, well, where'd you learn your theology? And then they give the name of this professor. Well, he did persecute the church, but it's, it really is much more aggressive than that. He ravaged the church, dragging away men and women to prison 
and causing many Christians to scatter. In Acts 8, it says, But Saul began ravishing the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. And he would put them into prison. And therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. But it wasn't just imprisoning them. It was also pursuing death. Paul didn't stop at imprisonment. And we see that. We certainly see that with the example of Stephen. But even from Paul's own testimony in Acts 26, he said, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. It was putting them to death. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Wow. Wow. In Galatians 1.13, it says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And then in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr, Stephen. And when he began preaching and they heard the sermon and they heard his truth, it says, but they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is his zeal. This is what he did. There were few like him, and it even says as much. And then finally, righteousness through the law. Look at this last comment that he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Now, many believe that he's talking here about external observances that which man could, can observe. Um, some would say that he certainly would have understood what sin is. He talks about that in Romans 7, about when he said, thou shalt not covet. I realize that coveting of my coveting is sin. But Paul claimed to be blameless in performing righteousness according to the law and tradition. These were external ob- observances to the law and the tradition before men, but not God. So they were just outward. And as far as men were concerned, he outdid all of his contemporaries. Galatians 1.14. He says, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. So when he says, if you think you have confidence in the flesh, if you think you have grounds for that, I more. And now we find out what happens with that confidence in the flesh. Look at what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me through the confidence in the flesh, these things that Paul did, those things I have counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. So he thought he was gaining something by doing these things. But when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he suffered the loss of those. And he gave them all up for the sake of Christ. You see, it does come down to, it's either works or faith plus works, or it's faith alone and Christ alone. And there's only one belief system, and that's Bible-believing Christianity that believes in justification by faith. You can have myriads of the others, all kinds of cults, all kinds of false religions, all kinds of even well-meaning people who claim to be Christians, but yet their salvation is based on what they have done, the confidence in the flesh. You know, I certainly remind us of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, no work, not baptism, not anything else. It is the gift of God. You don't pay for a gift. You don't earn a gift. You don't work for a gift. You merely receive it. And we receive Christ by faith. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You cannot boast and say, my salvation is in me. My salvation depends upon my works and they've been pretty good. You cannot do that at all. And so as Paul is looking at this, he counted it all loss to gain Christ. And that's what these verses teach us. Look at verse 8. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. It's very interesting here. Now he's saying that he's lost, um, he counts all things lost. I think on the one hand, this means, look, it doesn't just mean the things that I did. It means the things that anyone's doing to try to earn their way to heaven. Now we are making a distinction between salvation and sanctification. Sanctification after you are saved, yes, you are to work out what God has worked in. But this is salvation. We could do nothing to gain our salvation, to remove our sins. Nothing that would make us acceptable in and of ourselves. And he says, I count all things lost. So any religion, anything that someone does. And I think really too, you know, it's just a general thing that I count all things lost just so that I may have Christ. He says the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And I think first and foremost, it's salvation. And let me ask you this morning, do you know Christ? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Has there been a time in your life when you've realized, you know what, I am a sinner. There's nothing I can do to take away my sin. I can't work my way. God's not going to say you're good enough to come in. In fact, if God says anything at that point, he says, you are under my wrath, the wrath of God. You've offended my law. You've offended my holiness. And it can only be dealt with what a holy God can do, and that is to punish that person in eternal punishment called hell. It's a biblical doctrine. People don't, people don't like that. But if you learn that Christ went to the cross and took your sin 
and took your punishment so that you didn't have to. If you come to him by faith, Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me and my sins. I trust you as my Savior. At that moment of faith in Christ alone, you are forgiven and you know Christ then and you gain Christ then. Now, what's interesting here, not only does he count them lost, but he counts them rubbish. Rubbish is the Greek word skubalon. And skubalon means rubbish, can mean filth, and it can also mean dung. Dung. And we're not really sure what he actually meant here except to say whatever it is, it's worthless. In fact, if it's being promoted by those Judaizers, the evil workers, they are promoting what is filthy and rubbish and equal to dung because someone who believes it ends up in hell. He counts all of that loss so that he may gain Christ. And of course, he gained Christ when he trusted Christ as his Savior. So the things that he thought were gain... He is now given up and traded for the gain in Christ, which is by faith alone and Christ alone. And he says in verse 9, he completes it and says, And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I don't know if there's a greater passage in Scripture that tells us Salvation is not by works. I mean, this is so clear of a man who would have far exceeded anybody's works and says it's no good. It's scubalon. But I don't even care about that now because he says I counted all loss that I could receive Christ by faith and receive all of his forgiveness and eternal life. And when you understand it that way, you're thinking, who wouldn't want to come to Christ? Why wouldn't you want to come to Christ? And yet, that's our message, and at times we give it out, and, and, and people are not happy with it. People, they gravitate to works. One, because it's their natural inclination. It seems that that's the way of the world. Well, it might be the way of the world, but it's not the way of heaven. It's not the way of God, and it's not in reality because the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So forget it. If we sin in one point, we've broken the whole law. Isaiah says that our righteousness is but a filthy garment. And so it's not up to us. We have to turn to Christ. In fact, even the law not only shows us what sin is, but law points us to Christ as a tutor. Notice being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, self-righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The beautiful thing about the gospel is Christ died on the cross for your sin, paid your penalty. When you trust him as your savior, all of that is wiped clean. But you have no righteousness, which is necessary to go into heaven. So what do you do? Do you begin now to do righteous things so that your righteousness will be good enough to get you into heaven? No. Righteousness comes from Christ. 
Not only does he forgive your sins because of his work on the cross, but he gives you his righteousness. The righteousness that he accomplished on this earth as the God-man. That is put into our account. And when God looks at our account, he sees us in Christ. He says, all your sins have been forgiven. I see you in the righteousness of Christ. When you die, you will come to heaven. But in the meantime, you need to press on in Christ-like living and your sanctification. But nevertheless, there is salvation. So I truly do say, in light of this passage, if you don't know Christ, would you come to him by faith today and be saved? Would you come to him today and have your sins forgiven because he took your punishment? Would you receive the, the righteousness of Christ which comes from placing your faith in him and it's his righteousness imputed to you. Would you simply come to the Lord Jesus, say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins, for me a sinner. I trust you now as my savior, as my sacrifice. Well, as we conclude then this sermon, I want to read something by Spurgeon. We talked a little bit about Spurgeon in our our class, Sunday school, tools for Bible study. And I mentioned Spurgeon is a wonderful source. He wrote a sermon called Salvation by Works, a Criminal Doctrine. He says, the error of salvation by works is exceedingly plausible. You will constantly hear it stated as a self-evident truth and vindicated on account of its supposed practical usefulness. While the gospel doctrine of salvation by faith is railed at and accused of evil consequences, it is affirmed that if we preach salvation by good works, we shall encourage virtue. And so it might seem in theory, but history proves by many instances that as a matter of fact, where such doctrine has been preached, virtue has become singularly uncommon. And that in proportion as the merit of works has been cried up, morality has gone out. Look at the world. Look at the world. They all believe they're spiritual or religious, whether they believe in God and Christ and the Bible or not. And there's always this idea. I don't know what's up there, but if I do enough good works, it'll be fine. Everyone believes this. And yet you look at the world, you look at culture, and it's completely saturated with sin and immorality. Good point, Mr. Spurgeon. On the other hand, where justification by faith has been preached, conversions have followed, and purity of life has been produced even in the worst of men. Those who lead godly and gracious lives are ready to confess that the cause of their zeal for holiness lies in their faith in Christ. But where will you meet with a devout and upright man who glories in his own works? And so not only is this one of the best passages to show that salvation by works is not right, not biblical, and that faith in Christ alone, justification by faith, it's one of the best passages for that. We need to know it, and we also need to share it. And if there's any here today who have never applied it, you need to come to Christ.
And we will continue on in this, but there's a reason why we had to understand this. Because from this, he's going to go, I haven't attained perfection yet. I've come to Christ, I've gained Christ, but I still want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection. I haven't attained, but I'll tell you what I do. Forget what's behind. I reach forward and I press on toward the goal of Christ. And I'm excited this, about this theme and about learning these things and growing in these things, and I pray that you are too. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this first part of the series, Lord, it is so important. Before anyone can press on for salvation, or press on, it has to come from salvation, not for salvation. And so, Father, we don't want to cause any misunderstanding that pressing on will give you this salvation. In fact, Lord, we can't really press on until we first come to Christ for salvation. So, Father, would you teach us, would you prepare our hearts for the following sermons that we'll be talking about this? Lord, I do want to know you and I want to know Christ in a deeper way. I do want it to be a reality of the power of the resurrection to come out of our lives. I truly do want to be more like Christ. Christ my life, Christ my mind, Christ my goal, and Christ my strength. Would you help that be a real, real uh, blessing from you this year as we go through this as our theme? And we'll thank you and give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.